excuses and we are running out of time. We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Listening to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'm Marine Vandergeer. And I'm Jessica Townsend. Today, we are talking to a woman who is almost an icon in the climate movement. In fact, she is often credited with securing the Paris Agreement on Climate Change in 2015. Her name is Cristiana Figueres. She's from Costa Rica. Uh, actually, her father was the president there. So, you know. That helps, obviously. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, she's an incredible woman in her own right. So uh, from 2010 to 2016, she was the executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. (laughs) (laughs) Well done on that, Maureen. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) And we're talking about the book that she co-authored, which is called The Future We Choose. And her co-author is Tom Rivett Karnak, who was her senior political advisor for many years and now works with her on a podcast called Global Optimism. Mm. Nice plug there. That's very generous of you. (laughs) We don't usually plug other people's podcasts, (laughs) but this one is pretty good. And they get people like Theresa May and Stella McCartney on. They gave such an interesting interview that we decided to run the whole thing this time. I met them in their publisher's offices in London and actually they just secretly heard that they were on the bestseller list. Uh, But that has gone out now, so it's safe (laughs) to say. And I got them to introduce themselves. I'm Tom Karnak. And I'm Christiana Figueres. (laughs) And we are the co-authors of a book uh, entitled The Future Witches. And together with our very dear friend, Paul Dickinson, we're also co-hosts of a very fun podcast (laughs) called Outrage and Optimism. I noticed that. You get people like Theresa May on, don't you? We do. We've had Theresa May on. We've also had, I mean, we had John Kerry on last week. Uh, We've got Stella McCartney this week. We've had David Attenborough. (laughs) All right, all right. Stop bragging. (laughs) The two of you have written a book together and I love the way that you introduce each other as having been born in different geological uh, periods. So Christiana, would you mind introducing Tom to me? Tom belongs to a generation that is actually not a very exciting generation (laughs) because it is a generation that was born into the current geological period. And Tom shall never have the possibility of saying that he was born and now lives, therefore that he has experienced two geological periods. So that actually makes all young people somewhat of a little bit boring. (laughs) A bit beneath the previous generation. Definitely beneath. But... This is the generation, actually, (laughs) for whom we're working. So, um, yeah, it's a boring introduction, but one that fills all of us uh, who are alive right now with a huge sense of responsibility. And Tom, would you introduce Christiana? So, the geological period that we're in now, since the late 50s or early 60s, has been brilliantly called the Anthropocene. And the reason for that is that we, as anthropods, have had such an impact on the planet and such an impact on the climate that we've actually pushed it out of the stable geological period called the Holocene, the previous 12,000 years, which was the sweet spot 
for human evolution and human thriving that went from a few tens of thousands to so many around the world that's been great for human development in so many ways, right? But that ended when we had such an impact on the world that we actually became the most powerful actors in the next geological period, which has just begun. Now, Christiana was born in the mid-1950s, and I've actually seen her, you know, look askance at geologists who will say to her that the Holocene ended some decades before her birth. So bullying might be a bit I strong. Know, I know, I know. But I know. she's really tried to exert no. whatever influence she yes, has to absolutely. determine the beginning yes, of the no, Holocene when it is, and, and, so that she can span geological no, periods. No, but Tom, to be <laughs> honest, to be honest here, they have decided that it was in the 50s. So can you tell me what the purpose of your book is? Tom? Sure. So we are living at a unique moment in human history, right? So we have just entered a decade that will be the most consequential decade in the history of humanity. Um, this is, in fact, a once-in-humanity opportunity to put this right, right? Because if you look at the science, it says that in order to avoid a temperature rise of more than 1.5 degrees and thereby avoid these really quite alarming feedback loops where we lose control of the climatic system, we need to reduce emissions by 50% in the next 10 years. So that's an annualised reduction rate of about 7.5%. Who said that, by the way, the 50% in the next 10 years? So that's come from IPCC 1.5 report and from lots of different... It's, it's well accepted now that that's the pathway the we Stockholm have to research. The Stockholm Research Centre. It, it, yeah. it is basically scientific consensus. Yeah. And is that the global north or is that the whole that's planet? Just the that is the globe. flow everyone. of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So, so given that context, that's a lot, right? for us to absorb. And when when you say that to people, then they sort of their chest constricts and like, oh my God, we're not gonna make it. You know, this is this is this sort of terrifying reality that's barreling down at us and we we think we're gonna fail. That's kind of normal, right? But what we try to do with this book is to meet people where they are. So we start off by saying, well what's at stake? So we take people on an immersive journey based on the best science to what the world would be like in 30 years. My children will be younger in 2050 than I am now. And it, mine will be my age. Right. So, so it's yeah, very exactly. Soon. It's very soon. Mm. And either if we don't make any further efforts to reduce emissions, but we just meet the targets in the Paris Agreement, which is on track for a nearly four degree world, or if we make the efforts to actually do what is required of us and stay on a path to 1.5. So we set out those two worlds at the beginning, which is the question of what's at stake. Yes, and those two worlds are really quite different. So, Christiana, would you mind taking us through the business as usual, the path that we're on, uh, worldview that you paint in the book? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a world of, of huge concern, but just to put it into context, what we describe in the book is the experience that any human being will have um, in the year 2050, approximately, if the only thing that we do is the first tranche of emission reductions, which are the ones that are registered on the Paris Agreement in phase one. But let's remember that the Paris Agreement is a multi-decadal process. And that's why it's important to actually do the second tranche this year. But let us go into the scenario that um, for XYZ reasons, uh, countries do no more than comply with the first registry of efforts. Then by 2050, 
we will be living in a world that has increased its average heat to the point that large extensions in North Africa, in Australia, in Western United States may well be completely uninhabitable in 2050. We may well live in a world in which the people in those areas, as well as in others that have had too much drought or in fact too much flooding, will have to forcibly migrate, not because they want to leave home, but because they have no chance at survival at home. We may live in a world in which the large populations in Asia that depend on the frozen water on the Himalayas to have water in the summer may not have water. Same thing for those in South America that depend on the Himalayas in the Andes. We may live in a world that is so polluted, the air is so polluted, that you will not be able to walk out of your home, wherever that is, without a mask. And you will certainly not be able to play or exercise or do any hard work outside. All of this would actually bring us to a level of social and political conflict that would have to be met with very dramatic responses that are quite dangerous to the well-being of most people on this planet. So it is a direct threat to our lives and livelihood. It is a direct threat to our um, social and economic stability. And it is definitely a direct threat to democratic systems. I, um, there was one more thing that, uh, that struck me in the book was you described the role of the military in this future as well? Well, if you can imagine that there would be millions and millions of people on the move, um, fleeing home because they understandably want to feed themselves and their children. And if you can imagine that there would be, especially the tropical belt, the equatorial belt would be most hit. And so that would mean a huge pressure of um, climate migrants pressing up into the northern countries and down into the southern countries. And you can imagine that those countries would also be under pressure for their own food, water, and land. And so there would be a huge temptation to just deploy the military and make heaven only knows what kinds of defenses on those borders, completely unprotectable borders because mm. the pressure would be so big. Mm. It reminded me a little bit of John Lanchester's book, uh, The Wall, uh, what you described there. In the book, you paint a second scenario. Would you describe the conditions that lead to it and also to what that looks like? Sure. So, and just to point out that the world Christiana just described, we think it's really important to show people that but we don't dwell on it, right? That's 12 pages out of 170. So we, we point to it, but this book is about where we go next and how this can actually turn out in a way that we want it to. So the second story, really, that we tell in the book is around how the world would be in 2050 if we had come together and done this. And this is this opportunity curve narrative that is, I think, so fundamental to climate change, which is now we're getting to the point that we're going to determine if we're serious about this. Actually, 
there's a huge amount that we can come together to do that will actually create a much better world for ourselves, right? So there are different pieces of this. One of them, which is fundamental, is around the fact that if we've done this, it will be in part because we have made this planet a forest planet again. We have regenerated natural systems and we've found a way to integrate what is required for human consumption, what is available for wildlands and biodiversity, and how we then regreen the rest. So in that scenario, cities will be looked very different, right? They sounded delicious, yeah. I have they? to say. Absolutely. Every Don't you roof, want to live every in those space, cities? Every car park <laughs> full of food, full of vines, full of green, with clean less air, cars. less cars, no you know, air pollution gone, right? Because we've cut down energy generation and transport from fossil fuels. So this, those cities are the city, are the things that I really want to live in, right? These mm. green, clean mm. cities with space for kids to play and the creation and the connection of those different neighbourhoods. Um, you know, a sense where the energy generation is a major piece. So think about the difference that, that will make to the world if we no longer need to go to other parts of the world and dig stuff up from underground and then transport it and all the associated emissions that come from that. Um, and that getting ourselves together, I mean, in today's world, it's a sort of obvious but interesting insight that nobody's trying to warm the climate. It's an outcome of the fact that, of how we all live and that we haven't cooperated sufficiently. So in a world where we've cracked this, it's a world where we've come together and worked out how to cooperate and live collectively on this planet, which we're seeing signs of today. So that's the world that we paint and that we want to live in. And, you know, I just I, I just wanted to emphasize for people who are listening here from London or from the UK, um, this, is, this is not utopia, right? We have actually done this before. London, you don't think of London as being a stinky city, do mm. you? <laughs> Maybe may, if you think of Dickens, you do. Well, well but <laughs> that's, that's the exactly point. the point, yeah. right? So there was a moment in 1858 that London lived through something was called the Great Stink. And it was completely unmanageable, the stink in the city, because of the pollution of the Thames River. It was so stinky that, in fact, there were very, very clear plans to move Parliament not away from the river, away from London to some other city because they couldn't even meet there, okay? So, and, and that wasn't typical only of London. That was typical of most cities at that time. Now, we don't have stinky cities anymore because we brought engineers in and they have actually created all the infrastructure that we need to deal with the sources of that stink. So just like we don't have stinky cities anymore, we don't need to have polluted, congested, um, inefficient cities. We don't need that. We can definitely design for the human being as opposed to for the car or the road or the bridge or the parking space. Oh. We can definitely move into a much higher quality, certainly of urban living, but also of urban living. We can do that because we have all the technologies and we have the capital and we know what the policies are. So it is actually, you know, when it, when it boils down to it, it's quite simple. Just choose what world you want to live in and your descendants and go for it. So, And that choice is open to us only for 10 years. That's the amazing thing, right? If we do not make the right choices and reduce emissions by one half by 2030, after that it's going to be too late. So there is an alarm clock ticking here. It is 10 years to half emissions cut by 50% 
And then we can still have, you know, the opportunity of building a better world. After that, it's too late. And it's not even 10 years to make the choice, no. right? We have to have made the choice now. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. gotten to the emission yeah. reductions. Um, so your book paint, paints these two differing futures, but it does a lot of other things as well. So what was your intention? Do you want to describe what the program of the book is, Christiana? Yeah, so um, after we paint these two scenarios just to humanize climate change, because so many of us who work in climate change, you know, we dwell on the gigatons or, you know, the... The, the the seven gases and the difference between methane and CO2 and the equivalency and, you know, all of that, which, which was all important um, and, and all of which we have to be apprised of. And we tend to forget that this is about the human experience. So those two chapters that we have just described, the purpose of them is to humanize this, to humanize the experience that we're going to have and really put all of us into that experience with our third eye. And then we ask readers to pause for a moment. Once they have made a choice, and we hope everyone's making the right, the, the, <laughs> it's the same It's a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah, it's a bit <laughs> of a no-brainer. You're right, you're right. So once you've made the choice, then the question is, before you jump into what you're going to do, let's just pause for a moment and figure out what are the mental barriers that we have to engaging responsibly in constructing the future. Because the future is already under construction. And if we want a different future, we have to deconstruct a lot and reconstruct in a different in a different direction. But how we reconstruct and how we regenerate, and if we do so on time, very much depends on the thinking that we have, the attitude that we have. So we lay out, we invite readers to just take a little pause and consider three mindset shifts that we need to engage in and that we need to truly incorporate if we are to have the mental and the fiber capacity to choose a different world than what we're on track to do now. And those are stubborn optimism, endless abundance, and radical regeneration. So um, so what do we mean by that? I mean, obviously it's a deliberately provocative name for a mindset, and, and that was deliberate because we want people to to be a little bit surprised about this and not just sort of take it on their take it in their sleep. And so what we call stubborn optimism is um, a practice that we developed certainly toward the Paris Agreement in which we decided that after the 2009 debacle uh, of the Copenhagen negotiations, everyone was just in a terrible mood about climate change. And we knew that if we allowed that mindset to solidify that it would prevent any creative thinking around how do we get out of here. Um, and therefore, we decided to very intentionally inject optimism into the system. And when we say optimism, we don't mean naive, you know, thinking that if we just sit here on the couch, everything is going to be okay. We also don't mean a total ignorance and disregard for the realities that we're facing or for science, quite to the contrary. Optimism, in our sense, has to be based on full understanding of what we're experiencing right now and what science is projecting for the future. And in the light of that, then make a very conscious decision that we are actually going to create something different. So optimism is not the result of success. Obviously, we haven't succeeded. It's actually much more the input, the strategy with which, the mental attitude 
with which we want to engage on something as challenging as, as climate. Some people, and I suspect some people in XR, might not like the word stubborn optimism, right? And as Christiana said, we call it that very deliberately, provocatively. That doesn't matter. You know, what we talk about is the fact of that gritty, realistic determination to play our role at this pivotal moment in history. Some people might like the word courage or active hope. We're not fixated on the terminology, but what we mm. really need is the spirit. Without which we stand no chance, yeah. right? And so is this for politicians, activists, well, regular one, citizens? Well, there's one very specific, um, when you say who the audience is, it is very, very specifically and narrowly targeted to the human being. <laughs> <laughs> okay? And, and, and non-human beings read it. You yeah, I mean, non-human beings now. could, you know, maybe... <laughs> imbibe it but um it is toward human beings and the reason why we said that we say that is because we have a full respect for the capacity to um to rise to our higher purpose as individuals but also we have full understanding that everything that occurs whether it is occurring in your backyard in my front yard at the level of a corporation at a government level wherever it is it is because there is human intent behind it and because there's one human being or a thousand or 10 million who have actually taken that collective decision that that's the way we're going to move. So we're not differentiating the head of a state from the mother who is responsible for her children. We're all human beings and we're all taking decisions. All of us at different levels of the system, all of us with different levels of impact, all of us with different consequence, but we're all human beings. And it is nonsense to think of governments as being, you know, this amorphous thing, a beast out there, or a corporation as being an amorphous beast. I've never seen a government that doesn't have people that actually serve that mm -hmm. government. I've never seen a corporation that is not about people working there. You say that, and I think and you're however. right, uh, that to make change, it's going to have to be human beings. But it also feels like quite a lot that is wrong is kind of systemic, and it wasn't really, uh, you know, some evil people who got round a table and thought, oh, we're going to mess up the world Absolutely. by doing, you know. Totally we agree with you. Yeah. We don't, we don't think there's anyone alive who, you know, really, really, really wants more climate change, right? right. I Maybe mean, one honestly. person we think. Well, or, or, yeah. or, 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 or he doesn't postcard. even have the capacity to think about that um, possibility. Um, so we totally agree with you that this, this was not intentional, right? Honestly, if we look back, speaking about generations and geological periods, if we look back at my parents' generation from whence all of this came, None of them said, right, we are going to burn all the fossil fuels that there are on this planet because we want to cause climate change. None of them did that, right? Mm. They, it, this was all unintentional consequence, definitive consequence, but unintentional. Mm. And we have to keep that in mind when we're working with, with these people. The same thing for any government or any corporation, right? It's not like they said, wow, this would be great if we had, you know, three or four or five degrees of warming. Wouldn't we all be better off? No, that's not the case. Mm. Now, today we know that that is the consequence. So today you can no longer stand away mm. from actively engaging in the solutions because today we really know the consequences. Mm. But, um, but, but I need to, you know, push back on you because systemic changes do occur at corporate level 
and they certainly occur at government level, federal, state, city, community level, all different levels. But they are because of human decisions. Uh, We must remember that every single species on this planet is being affected by climate change, but there's only one species that can do something about it, and that's those of us sitting around the microphone. Mm -hmm. There's only one species. Okay, and Tom, so would you mind just taking us through the other two mindsets? Well, why don't I do, I'll do abundance, and Christiana does regeneration so well, so she can do that. Um, So the endless abundance one, which again is, you know, provocatively named, really points to the fact that we have reached the end of the concept of zero sum and its usefulness to human beings. So, so much of economics and our way of viewing the world is based on valuing things that are scarce, Mm. right? So um, that has been the history of colonialism all the way through the fundamental basis of our economic system. If it's scarce, it has a high value. If it's abundant, it has a low value. And that has become, you know, um, we've used that model for things which are entirely inappropriate, like education, right? Mm -hmm. So a degree which is scarce, so only a few people have it, is more valuable often than a degree that is abundant because anybody can get in. So that way of thinking has become um, ubiquitous in our approach to the world. But on a planet that reach, has reached its limits, that type of thinking will lead us to disaster mm-hmm. because the entire thing will collapse and we will fight each other for what remains as dwindling resources. So what we propose in Endless Abundance is that we have to flip that thinking. We have to flip it thinking from you win, I lose, to either we're all going to win or we're all going to lose together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we give an example of the Paris Agreement. So in the Paris Agreement, for years, there was this fighting between developed and developing countries around fairness. Mm -hmm. So developing countries would say to developed countries, you caused this problem, and what's more, you said you'd sort it out. So go and do something about it, and then we can look at a global agreement. And developed countries would say to developing countries, the world has changed now. Those emissions are coming from different places. We can no longer view this in the way that we previously did. Now, both of those arguments were correct right? But the clashing of the two of them and the sense of scarcity, the sense of like, I don't want this, I want someone else to take it, this sense of kind of panic and scarcity meant that collective agreement was not possible. Now, to the degree that 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 example provides a way forward, with the Paris Agreement, this was flipped. It was flipped as a shared objective in the long term and everybody determining their own steps based on their own self-interest. And what we found when that strategy was put into place is that national governments went further and faster than we could have imagined, and they introduced more ambitious NDCs, like everything else in climate change, it could go further and it needs to go further. But that strategy of momentum... NDCs? Oh, sorry, NDCs, nationally determined contributions. Mm -hmm. That strategy of momentum, of a little bit of momentum and then a bit more, and then we can go further, then we can go further, was how we got there with the Paris Agreement, which is based on that concept of abundance. It's it's interesting, though, because it feels a tiny bit counterintuitive that now we've got to the end of the planet's resources we should start thinking abundantly i know i I mean you explained it very well yeah um uh, christiana so would you mind explaining the last mindset that you go through yeah so again you know with with deliberate provocation we call that um radical regeneration and um we we start from the premise that all of us as human beings are innately regenerative. And we may not realize that, but when any loved one is in a situation of being ill or having a very difficult experience in in their life or, you know, down on anything, the first thing that we do is we go to that loved one and we support that person. 
And in the best of all cases, we support that person until they're back, you know, where they where they would like to be. And that is the spirit of solidarity and of regeneration because we are using our energy to regenerate the positive feeling and energy of another person. And when we do that, um, we don't always do it with ourselves, which is a little bit sad. And, uh, you know, any self-help book will tell you the first thing you have to do is develop your self-love. So um, we have to be able to do that with ourselves. And um, because this is a podcast that is listened to by many climate activists, I really want to underline the importance of self-care, self-care. You know, and I have been I have been in this fight for decades. How many? I don't know. Come 1990s, <laughs> whatever that is. Previous geological period. Um, so, yeah, for more than 30 years. And I cannot tell you, Jessica, how many of my dear, dear friends are burned out, right? Mm-hmm. Because we've been at it for 30 years. And the frustration of, of seeing progress, yes, but not at the scale and speed and intensity that we need. Mm. It is just incredibly frustrating. Mm. And, and honestly, this is not a sprint, right? This is, this is the major transformation that the world has ever seen, the largest by far. And so we have to understand that this is a marathon. And all of us who are in this have to take care of ourselves because we cannot afford burnout. Mm. We have to be able to identify when we are on the verge of burnout and go and find wherever you find your regeneration. Mm. For me, regeneration is either in nature or actually with spiritual practices. And, you know, everybody will do it differently. Some people will say, I want to go down, you know, I I don't know, I want to go dance or I want to go paint or I want to go hiking in Nepal or wherever, whatever you want to do. Everybody knows what regenerates. But honestly, we all have to do that. Mm. And we have to do that not just for ourselves, but for those who are around us, because otherwise we turn into completely impossible people (laughs) to be with. And we have to do it for the cause. Yes. We so have to do it for the cause. We have to be regenerative with ourselves. Then going beyond that, going beyond ourselves and um, and um, those people that we love, we have to be able to extend the arc of regenerative capacity that we all innately have over nature, mm. right? We, we can't be just regenerative mm. with ourselves and with each other. We have to do it with nature mm. because we have honestly destroyed a hell of a lot. Mm. We've destroyed 60% of the species that existed when I was a child. We've destroyed, we've cut down you know, one third of the trees, at least, and a million more species are under threat of extinction. And so we have to be able to dig into that regenerative commitment, which has to be more than a spirit, commitment, and regenerate the soil and regenerate the land and regenerate Mm. the air. Um, and, And that's what this is all about. So we call it radical regeneration because Perhaps the most radical of that is to take care of ourselves, Mm. Um, but it's all the same, Mm. and it is all mutually reinforcing. Once we become aware of that regenerative spirit, it is easier to practice it at all different levels of the system. Mm. But we have to be able Mm. to understand the urgent need for it. So those are the first sections of your book. Um, Your third section has a program of 10 different approaches. I can do a quick summary of those. Okay, so 
at the end of the book, we talk about how we can get engaged and how we can feel like active participants in creating this future that we have to create. And in the te- in the final section, there's 10 particular actions, but they're really in three different groups. The first group is how we show up to meet this moment, right? So we've already talked about some of these approaches of stubborn optimism and endless abundance and radical regeneration. We also talk in that piece that it's really important to feel this, right? It's really important to feel the full force of where we are and what's at stake. Mm. Um, And we've not really done that before. And I think XR has been amazing at encouraging people to do that. Mm. We feel that going through that process can be really cathartic and can help you develop a sort of calm resolve that you will be, that you will spend whatever energy and time you need to, to be an active participant in creating that future. So we say, you know, face your grief, but have a vision of where we're going to go as exactly. well as principles. Uh, what we have found in XR is the mm. link between those is action. So yes. it used to be don't scare people because they'll be too dismayed. But actually, when people, the facts can appear quite scary and there often is a grieving process yes but then when people feel they can act then they seem to feel much more positively about it totally so that's that's what we so we say there's that stuff about how you show up and then what you can do in your own life right so people have mixed views on this but our view is that this is an everyone everywhere initiative and that actually looking at where you can make a change in your own life can be significant and it also will make you feel better about this whole journey. You'll feel more engaged and more bought in. So in the book, what we propose as one of the strategies is actually having a slightly different lens on the time frame, right? So we need to halve our emissions in 10 years. Actually, we as humans tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10. If you think about it as 10 years and say we need to at least halve emissions because of the issues of equity and others not emitting as much as us, and you make a plan over a 10-year period, that will include replacement of capital-intensive items in your life that are the sources of most emissions, like cars and boilers and furnaces and things. It's also enough time to rethink what kind of life you want to live. And do you want to retrain and do something else? We, for example, have started a podcast called Outrage and Optimism in part because it means we can have an audience without getting on a plane as we build that up, right? So you can think laterally about how do you want to change your life over a longer time scale. And we also talk about things like diet and other changes we need to make. And then the final part of the actions, the third piece, um, is how we engage with power. So, you know, we can't do this all as individuals. We need to make the changes we can. We also need to engage with corporations, with city governments, with national governments, etc., in a sustained and consistent way to push for the type of systemic change that we really need. Um, I mean, XR has been amazing at this, right? And this figure that we quote in the book of... 3.5% of a population participating in civil disobedience in a constri- consistent way. I mean, what's interesting about that is you can't have 3.5% of a population and turn everyone else in the in the population off, right? <laughs> and I think that actually XR has been really thoughtful. Um, and I've watched these sort of pamphlets and videos that have come out around, you know, how do we self-reflect now on what we do with civil be- disobedience to really take it to scale? Because the interesting thing about the history of that is that, it's when the most vulnerable groups mm-hmm. rise up to take their own power that civil disobedience has been most effective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the kids on the street, the school strikes has been so impressive because you it hits you in the chest, right? Because it's like climate change is fundamentally unfair mm-hmm. and these kids are being fundamentally affected by it, as was the case with 
you know, the women in the suffragette movements, the, you know, the, the um, African-Americans in the civil rights movement, Indians mm-hmm. in the Gandhian independence movement, etc. Mm-hmm. So there's something really special about that. And we need to find a way to support that as mm-hmm. well as doing all the other amazing actions that can continue to build momentum. Mm-hmm. So those are the three things. How do we show up? What can we do in our lives? How do we engage with power? Broken down into 10 steps. One of the big arguments that happens within XR all the time is whether it's going to be possible to do things at this scale within the system or whether there's going to have to be some sort of systemic breakdown in order to kind of incentivize and focus people and also change the economic model um, in a way that those that have such a big stake in it will be prepared to enable that. Um, you talk about the sustainable development goals in this. Now, that's within, that's within the growth model, I believe. There's well, but if, if you, read, you read the book, I'm sure you've seen that we talk about things like indicators of GDP. We talk about a range of other indicators within the economic system that are really fundamental structural problems for us in terms of making progress. So we do absolutely bring all of those different elements in, in terms of the need to evolve that while working within it, right? Because this is, we can't sort of, if we sit back and look at the system and say, and this was our experience, in Paris, we can't look at the system and design a perfect one then go out and create it. We have to evolve and build momentum to get our way there, right, through all the tools that we have. And as we go down that Well, that would be the least painful way. What's that? To do that, to evolve within the system and and move. Well, but evolving within the system also means protest. It also might mean breakdown. That's a form of evolution as well. We don't really see a dichotomy between those Mm -hmm. two things, right? We don't see that there's like a radical and an incremental route and we have Mm. to choose between them. We think that actually this is one endeavour and it will include radical jumps and incremental improvements. And afterward, that's a very sort of... um what I just said is a kind of Eurocentric kind of approach anyway, mm-hmm. because if you look at Syria, if you, you know, right. there already there are already places in, in the yeah. world uh, yeah. where things are breaking down. Well, I, I appreciate that comment, um, Jessica, because as the developing country representative on this team, I must say um, I have a very hard time with calls for non-growth. Non-growth in industrial societies is well called for. And we have to get over our constant and endless consumption habits. You know, some, and we talk about this in the book. Enough has got to be enough. But if you take the reality of developing countries, we have a completely different reality. We still have 800 million people in extreme poverty for whom economic growth is not only the only way that they're going to get there out of poverty. It is their right and none of us, and I'm a developing country person living partially in an industrialized world, but none of us have the right to curtail the opportunities that any human being has just because they were born in a developing country, just because they were born within the band of poverty. Precisely because of that, we should so be on their side and facilitating their economic growth because it is their right. It is their human right. That we cannot take away. So when we talk about economic growth, we have to differentiate two completely different realities. You put that really well. I interviewed Amitabh Ghosh about 10 days ago, and he was saying that both the crisis and the solutions will have to come out of Asia just because of the weight of numbers. Do you agree with that? Well, the crisis is already there. There is no doubt that um, Asia 
has um, regionally the highest emissions, the highest population. Uh, they're poised for more economic growth, for more, you know, everything. Um, and, and certainly for more emissions because of the fuels that they have been using. So absolutely, I mean, if you see it from a geographical point of view, it is absolutely clear that the world will go wherever Asia goes. That is clear. And that is precisely why it is so important to understand what growth has to be in the 21st century. Because we have to support the growth of many of those um, economies that are either small, medium, or large, you know, and you go all the way through the whole spectrum in Asia, um, but many of which, or all of which, still have really just miserably poor people. So that growth needs to be there, and this is the difficult situation for them. It That growth cannot have the carbon footprint that the growth of the industrialized countries has had. Frankly, you know, that's been a pretty easy ride for industrialized countries. So a couple of times uh, in this chat, you've talked about 2015 Paris Agreement, which you were both so spectacularly involved with. Uh, we now are in the UK looking forward to hosting the next one in, uh, at the end of this year in Glasgow. How do you think that's looking? How optimistic are you feeling about that? What we have to understand is that while this COP coming up, uh, COP26 in Glasgow, is arguably the most important coming together of countries around the climate issue since 2015, but it is fundamentally different, fundamentally different, because in Paris, we had two processes that ran side by side. One was a multilateral process that had all countries of the world, 195, unanimously agree to a common path, long-term path, to decarbonize their own economies and the global economy. And that needed a multilateral process for which the French presidency had to really hone its skills in multilateral diplomacy, which is when you have all representatives of all the governments agreeing on every single comma and every single paragraph in that legally binding text and having made it now national law in 189 countries. Inserted into that, we had a different process, which was not a negotiation at all. It was a unilateral presentation of every country that came forward at the request of the multilateral process came forward to say, this is how much I can contribute. And those contributions were registered as the first tranche of efforts under the Paris Agreement. Now we're going to have the second tranche. But those numbers that were registered there were not the product of an agreement around everyone. Mm -hmm. Those were only the product of a national process in each country, a domestic process, that then came up with that contribution and registered it. Now, five years later, we don't need the first process anymore because the multilateral agreement stands. <laughs> Piece of cake then. Well, <laughs> maybe. Paris was, e Paris was easy. Right. Maybe. I mean, the multilateral piece is there and will be, you know, uh, accompanying us for the next uh, couple of decades. The difficulty now is that all countries have to, by the end of this year, finish their process of reviewing what they did or didn't do under the first tranche and be ready to come forward with, 
here's my second tranche. Mm. That's not easy. Mm-hmm. That is not easy. It is, anyway, it's technically pretty complicated. Um, and it is politically complicated by the fact that we have a few friends who will not come with their increased ambition to register now in Glasgow. And so that makes it geopolitically complicated, right? Mm-hmm. But we have to understand that it's a very different process to Paris. Mm-hmm. And the skill set that is necessary from the on the part of the British government is very much of a skill set of individual conversations with every single country in the world, mm-hmm. bilateral conversation. They don't need to agree to anything in common, mm-hmm. but they do need to come with um, an um, ambitious new contribution. It's not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. And now turning to the bread. <laughs> <laughs> so as Christiana said, the, the road from here to there is a big diplomatic outreach by the UK, right? I mean, the pressure on the UK government to deliver this in a year where they are already focused across the board, right, with trade deals and now coronavirus and other things, they have to find a way, and I think there are encouraging signs, of really identifying that this is an above and beyond priority. I mean, this is much more important than Brexit, right? Brexit will be a footnote to history. But I do think that, and there are great people in the COP team who are working super hard and are really focused on what needs to happen and we're good friends with them and they're, 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 they're really good and very encouraging. But one other thing I would just say is this government has delivered a policy that half of us hated. And I do get concerned that the residual resentment towards that is leading to a background feeling um, which is somewhat negative towards the government, which I entirely understand, but that is bleeding over into this effort towards the COP. And it's really important that this is too important for us to just sort of say we kind of want them to fail, right? And I'm not saying anyone's saying that overtly, but there has to be a way to constructively engage and help the UK government to succeed in this pathway. And we all have responsibility for that because substance and optics both matter here. It would have been possible for people to declare the Paris Agreement a failure if you looked at it from a certain perspective, right? You could have said, well, it didn't solve the issue for all time in all perpetuity with with agreements that everyone will be thrown in jail unless they actually do what they said they'd do. What it did do was move the conversation massively further forward. And my concern in all of this, what I just said, is that there's nothing the UK government can do now that will lead to people in our movement saying that they did a great job and that they succeeded. And that's a pretty depressing state of affairs. And that's a much more toxic environment for them to succeed in. So, you know, I just think we all need to pay attention to that fact of how are we constructively engaging and how are we helping setting ourselves up for success? It is It is in all of our interest, all, all our human being interest. You notice how fixated I am yeah. on all human <laughs> beings. Every single human being is going to be benefited by this COP being a substantial contribution to the global efforts. And we have to, A, it has to really make that contribution. It has to be understood as making that contribution, both, right? Mm -hmm. So there is the substance of what comes out. There is also the messaging that goes out. And we have to be able to deliver on both Mm -hmm. because the signaling is very important, Jessica. It's very mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. If we come out of COP26, you know, and the message is, oh, my God, we did nothing on climate change. Well, of course, you know, all our enemies will be standing up there, you know, in standing ovation. That's exactly what they want. This is still a fight. 
This is still a fight. We are not at the point in which we see a clear line to half emissions by 2030. And so we have to send a strong signal that we are not going to stand up for anything that is responsible. Everything from now on has to be headed toward 1.5 degrees and no more. And we have to be able to squeeze into that. It's a, it's a narrow path, but we have to be able to squeeze into it. That means all of us. And that doesn't mean criticizing those, you know, who are doing their utmost. Um, and, and I mean, some, let me say, constructive feedback and criticism is always helpful. Sure. And, and I always invited it. But we also have to be fair and we have to be prudent and wise. Mm. And we have to really cement in people's imagination and in people's space of what is possibility, uh, a space of possibility, we have to be able to cement a new reality, the reality that we're working toward. So and I think um, one of the great things about your book is that I think that because there has been such a resistance to taking the real picture on board, that many of the scenarios that have been painted have been so black that when people engage they become quite depressed and if I think that people are hungry for positive visions so that we can look there may be suffering ahead there almost certainly is uh, and for for a big part of the globe but if we can look beyond that to a more positive kind of future that actually serves both the planet and humanity yeah. better, then... And, and then it, it takes a hell of a lot of courage to do that, right? Because the easy thing is to, frankly, you know, see all the negative, which is abundantly evident, and then crawl in a hole and be completely paralyzed by fear. Mm. And, and we're also afraid and we're, you know, in pain and in grief, but we understand that that cannot be the end of the journey. We have to be able to both honor the fear, the pain, the despair, and move beyond it at the same time. We cannot, on our watch, crawl into a hole and say, that's the end. You're almost certainly aware that we had uh, a result the other day in court in Britain where uh, the third runway at Heathrow was uh, stopped uh, for now. Uh, And that was because of Paris. So I guess that you must have been pretty pleased with that. Well, I, I would say the guardrails were Paris, but uh, the activism was definitely not the <laughs> Paris Agreement. Um, and, and that shows, you know, the really very, very positive um, interaction that exists here, right? Since we have all agreed to where we have to go, then to have both activism and Uh, serious policy and the courts and the regulation. I mean, what we have to get here is an alignment of everyone looking down the same direction and then speed it up. So, yeah, I mean, that was fantastic. I think it sets a very important precedent, right? It sets a very important precedent because here here is the astonishing fact. 60% of the infrastructure that we're going to need for humans to be on this planet hasn't even been built so the fact that there was this decision on what would have been future infrastructure is already sending very strong signals to anyone who's considering future infrastructure to understand that that infrastructure 
has to be low carbon, highly resilient, and contributing to life on this planet. And we're going to have to figure out how to do that. But it is a huge message. And I saw the other day, I, I know we've got to close in a second, but you were calling for activists to come to COP, I believe. What's your thinking there? I mean, of course we're going to be there. <laughs> of course. <laughs> there was a piece in The Guardian, was it, I think it must have been last time you were here, that would, that said, Christiana Figueres says, non-violent direct action is the way. Was that but it from doesn't the book? Say, but it doesn't say to the at COP. COP. Yeah, yeah. So, no, 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 no. So, oh, so it's, okay. it's from I the book. It in the book, we've got oh, okay. it. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But, but, but in any event, in general, we're actually quite supportive of um, of civil disobedience, peaceful civil disobedience, um, in which X, uh, XR has been so trained. And honestly, you know, huge kudos to uh, to the training of XR to all of its members to do civil disobedience in a responsible way. Yeah. I mean, honestly. And I know that that training is not easy, right? Because it it is a lot of many hours of training, but it's also a change of attitude and mentality. So huge kudos to XR for that. Um, and we are very supportive of, um, of activism, of civil disobedience. We talk about it very clearly in the book, the 3.5. Um, percent of uh, of population that needs to be on the streets in order to get a change is is, is quite heartening because we could actually get there, right? <laughs> we could actually get there. So so that's quite 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 helpful. I have always actually been incredibly supportive of activism on the streets um, in general throughout the year, and actually even activism during the COP. It has to be well managed, right? It has to send a strong signal and be respectful of the process. At the same time, that is not an easy balance to reach. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes in my six years there, most of the times I would say the activism, you know, in front of the copper or wherever it was, was actually beautifully managed. The, the signals were sent very, very clear. And it's helpful for governments to hear that their people want more responsibility. Um, and it has to be balanced with a uh, with a respect of the process because, as we were just saying, the process needs to deliver. The worst thing is that we then paralyze the process and it doesn't deliver, right? So that balance, Jessica, is not an easy balance. One last thing. Extinction Rebellion calls upon the government to get to carbon net zero uh, by 2025. The government is going for uh, 2050, do you, what do you think about those targets? The Paris Agreement says net zero by 2050 because that is what science has told us. So we're not inventing that. Nobody in Paris invented that. We just took the advice of the IPCC. We took the advice of the consensus of science. Now, in order to get to net zero by 2050... Um, first of all, we should understand that it is 2050 at the latest, okay? So anything before, every day counts, every week, every month, every year counts. So, you know, that is our absolutely last, last deadline. Any time before is so much better and means less human pain. So, you know, 2050 as our last deadline. Um, but in order to do that, it doesn't mean that we just sit here and, you know, do nothing about it until 2049. It means that in particular in this decade, in the decade of the 20s, we have to be able to cut emissions by 50% globally. 
In industrialized countries, that very likely means more than 50% because of all the issues that we've just discussed, right? We have to make room for economic growth in developing countries. So, you know, you pick your target, 60% in industrialized countries by 2030, that would probably be fair. Um, that's an issue of fairness. That's not an issue of science, right? So we have, mm -hmm. to, we have mm -hmm. to separate those two things. Science does say 50%. Uh, by 2030 and net zero by 2050. I would also add that the 2025 target just changes the nature of the conversation and adds more pressure, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's been extremely helpful to yeah. have that narrative out there. That may not end up becoming policy either in this country or around the world, but that shouldn't stop the importance of that being part of the debate. It moves the guardrails of where the debate happens and it enables everybody to be more ambitious, right? And that's great. And, yeah. and you've seen actually yeah. some corporations coming out and saying, 2050 is too late for us. Actually, we think we can do it, you know, sooner. You saw Microsoft come out and say they're going to do it by 2030. You saw Amazon say we're going to do it by 2040. I mean, anything that actually accelerates the process is incredibly helpful. You're right. It would be great to set up this race. Yes, <laughs> a race to the top. An arms totally. race. One that we enjoy is good. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you both so much for this rather Thank intense you. hour of me <laughs> sitting over you on the sofa. <laughs> Thank you. Right, so it's really interesting how, um, unlike Extinction Rebellion, Christiana seems to be okay with the 2050 target, which is obviously the UK government's uh, net zero emissions carbon uh, target at the moment. And something that XR is really unhappy with. Yeah. Yeah, but she, yeah, she seems to be following the IPCC report, even though... Plenty of scientists have come out since and pointed out that they didn't take into account potential tipping points and also rely on carbon capture technology that isn't yet really on stream. But to be honest, they'd given such a good, long, interesting uh, interview that I didn't really feel like pushing them on the external. No, and I think it's important to know that there are people who do support this 2050 deadline, yes. you know, because <laughs> that's the struggle, isn't it? We have to try and get yes. everyone on board saying and, 2050 and is too late. Faith. It's in good faith as well. But yeah. she is also incredibly rigorous about saying, that we have to halve emissions in the next decade. Mm. And in itself, that is a really hard yeah, target. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's not like she's uh, coasting along saying everything will be fine. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really love the way that they contrast this potential dystopian future if we carry on as we are now. You know, business as usual will mean all these horrible things. But then they also talk about, you know, if we take action now, we start planting trees, we start going, you know, know reducing our carbon uh, reliance and emissions we could potentially have a good future absolutely and our cities will be greener and better places to live in and our communities will be better as well and actually i think that our international politics will be better as well because of the collaboration that's mm. needed in order to realise some of these goals. And I found it really exciting because I think many people at, in and out of XR are looking for positive visions for potential sure. futures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We know that business as usual is pretty grim, but uh, we want to know where we might end up mm. if we change. Yeah, You've been listening to the Extinction Rebellion podcast, and so we are back with a new season of varied shows, new ideas. Um, it's going to be a bit different from 
what you've heard from us before, really. <laughs> We're very excited. We've got a couple of shows about carbon, uh, one about decolonization, and there I'm really excited that we've got one about money as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And money, how it's contributing to the crisis, kind of the system. Investments in fossil fuels, yeah. uh, but also... Subsidies. Those stakeholders who have so much to lose that they're working against uh, addressing the climate and ecological mm. emergency. Yeah. So, plenty to look forward to. This has been the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I've been Moraine Vandergeer. And I've been Jessica Townsend. Yes. Thanks, guys. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Rebellion.